You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. What are the benefits of standard versus individualized insulin treatment strategies for patients with diabetes? Joining us to discuss customizing insulin therapy is Professor of Medicine at Oregon Health Science University in Portland, Oregon, Dr. Matthew Riddle. Dr. Riddle, welcome to ReachMD. Glad to be here. Thanks very much. Let's start off with why does insulin therapy maintain its importance as a treatment for diabetes, especially with all the oral agents coming out these days? Well, the main reason is that diabetes is, before all else, a, a disorder of insulin deficiency. Everybody with diabetes has less insulin than they need to do the metabolic job that insulin must do. And so it, uh, giving insulin as treatment is replacing a deficiency syndrome. But beyond that, uh, we have 90 years' experience with insulin. And over that time, we have a, a lot of evidence, more than for any other treatment for diabetes, of the medical benefits of insulin. And so I, I don't expect we're going to see a lot of new surprises, bad news of uh, unexpected side effects and so on with insulin. Uh, it's just the best tested treatment there is. We've had a lot of new kinds of insulin come out. We've had the fast-acting analogs. We've had the long-acting analogs. Um, you know, how has this changed the way we treat patients? Well, it really has helped us to have a lot of different choices, both because uh, the patients that we treat are all different from each other, but also there's uh, various ways that, that insulin is normally made by the body. So the insulin analogs, the most recent uh, versions of insulin that we have, come both in, the, as you know, the rapid-acting uh, kinds, Humalog, Novolog, uh, and others. Uh, and the long-acting ones, uh, insulin glargine, uh, known as Lantus, and, and insulin detamir, uh, levomir. Um, and so we can, with these analogs, we can better match the delivery of insulin to the way the body normally secretes it with meals the re- for the rapid-acting analogs, that's the replacement, and for between meals and overnight, the, the long-acting basal insulins. So that allows us to more accurately replace uh, the uh, insulin needs of the patients. And then having the premixed insulins, which we don't use in general in our group uh, routinely for diabetes, either type 1 or type 2, but it's a convenient option for some patients. And then finally, uh, for me, it's nice to have a range of prices available. Um, the, the modern analog insulins are, are in some ways superior to human insulin, uh, but they cost more. And for some patients where price is the, one of the main features of whether they can take insulin consistently or not, it's nice to have the less expensive human insulins available. And for many patients, they're, they're quite satisfactory as well. So more options, better, because the patients are all different. What has changed in the way we ask patients on taking insulin? For one thing, we we have such strong evidence now that getting better glucose control makes a difference in terms of medical outcomes. So we're shooting for for better goals, tighter glucose control, trying to get to 7% A1C in in a large proportion of the patients. Um, And to do this, um, the insulin regimen has to be uh, accurately designed, and the patient needs to be doing um, glucose testing at home, there, there's more to it than there used to be. 
which puts uh, a lot of pressure on all of us to teach people with diabetes uh, to do what they need to do and and assign some responsibility to them to, to do the daily work uh, to carry it out. And because it's more complicated in this way that I've just been describing, it's very fortunate that we've found some ways to simplify the process. So uh, for people with type 2 diabetes who are have not had it for very many years and still have quite a bit of their own insulin remaining, it really helps a lot to be able to start with the one injection of long-acting basal insulin as the starting regimen, um, which often for them early on does a really good job. So we have both um, much more detailed regimens available for the people who need those, uh, and we have some simple ways to start for the people who can do it that way and, and have good success. So we've asked patients to do a lot, but we've also found ways to simplify it for some of them. What seems more important, finding new forms of insulin to fill some type of deficiency or unmet need, or finding better ways to help people with diabetes use the ones we have? I think that uh, the insulins we have are pretty good, and so the main difficulty uh, in doing the best possible job for for all of our patients uh, involves implementing the program. That is, and, and there's a lot of parts to that. It has to do with finding the, the patients a, in a timely way, making the diagnosis early, uh, getting the insulin started when it should be, uh, teaching the person to do what they need to do, um, having regularly scheduled appointments, uh, and uh, a system for uh, using insulin. And th- this means more than just scheduling appointments. It really means that the, the health systems need to provide the resources of the right kinds. It le- needs to uh, make it possible for reimbursement for these services to be available. I think that the, it's a big challenge to our health systems to provide a structure for the use of insulin, which is a, a fairly sophisticated treatment. It needs a fairly sophisticated system to support it. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Matthew Riddle. We are discussing customizing insulin therapy to the patient. Well, Matt, let's talk a little bit about the different regimens. How do you match different insulin regimens to different patients in your practice? Well, let me introduce this uh, concept by saying that insulin is different from other treatments. It, um, it requires individualization from the very start. That is, there are big differences between individual people with diabetes and the total dose of insulin they're going to need, as much as a tenfold difference. We're not used to that with other kinds of treatments where the dose of one pill or another pill is pretty much the same from one person to another. Besides that, the people with diabetes have different meals, different exercise patterns, and different insulin needs from day to day. So they're within a given person's experience. Every day is a different day. Uh, and this is especially true when they're needing to take uh, both long-acting and mealtime insulin injections, basal bolus therapy. Um, where decisions have to be made multiple times a day, um, and therefore a lot of decisions um, are required by the by the individual person. So insulin is just different and a little harder in this particular way for people who need multiple injections. So this leads me to the next point, which is that in my mind there really are three different um, ways that we need to think about starting a person on insulin when they begin. The, the first is, if this is a person who is, does not have juvenile onset type 1 diabetes, that is, insulin-dependent diabetes uh, appearing 
pretty pretty abruptly uh, under age 20 or so. Um, it's still possible to have adult onset type 1 diabetes, insulin requiring insulin deficient diabetes, and that is very often not recognized for what it is at the outset. I think it's it's really important for us to try hard, all doctors who see patients with diabetes, uh, to recognize when uh, it's type 1 diabetes, even if it's diagnosed at the at age of 40 or 50 or 60. My oldest patient with new type 1 diabetes was 80 years old, um, and he needed multiple injections from the start. So that's the first uh, uh, question. If, if the person has type 1 diabetes, you really need to help them get to a multiple injection program pretty fast, and that that really does put the pressure on the education system, and it requires some frequent contacts and some, some careful instruction. But then, even if that's not what you're faced with, uh, then there are a couple of decisions. My view is that if it's possible, with especially with type 2 diabetes, which doesn't come on quite so fast and hard, um, it's, it's necessary to try to have the person learn stepwise what they have to do. So oral agents and diet, we, of course, that's where we start. But when insulin's necessary, then you start with the simplest possible program. So the, the basal insulin treat-to-target program, um, as you know, I've been working with that for a long time, trying to make it as simple and user-friendly as possible. So that uh, is where we start with practically all of our patients now. But the expectation is that that's going to be enough only for about 50% of them. But that doesn't mean it isn't the right way to start practically all the time. So we start with 10 units at bedtime of a longer-acting insulin, NPH, glargine, or detamir, um, and, uh, and then we see how far they can get in the first four to six months. And then the other 50% need something more. But after learning to do the glucose testing, uh, adjust the dose, do the injections, uh, get used to the idea of making decisions, it's a little easier for them to get uh, to the next uh, level, which is uh, to take one and then perhaps later on more than one mealtime injection. So it's a stepwise process. That makes it a lot easier for everybody. Let me switch to the next uh, issue, which is interesting, is these new GLP-1 analogs, Victoza, Bieta. They're not formally approved to use with insulin at the current time, but I know you're doing a study looking at the combination. Where do you see that's going? We're all very interested in this new group of drugs. The, uh, so liraglutide and exenatide are, are the two uh, new ones on the market, Victoza and, and Bieta by their trade names. Um, but they're, they're, they're so new that we really haven't uh, enough experience to place them exactly in the, in the right uses yet, I think. Um, as, as you know, they, uh, they favor weight loss rather than weight gain. They have very low tendency to cause hypoglycemia. Uh, they uh, control blood sugar by a novel mechanism different from the way insulin does it, but involving insulin, uh, enhancing the secretion of insulin in the process. Uh, it, it's a very fascinating thing. It's another, another hormone replacement therapy, um, which really is going to help us in the long run. So the real question, I think, is um, in what people with diabetes, uh, is it going to be preferable to use one of these drugs as the first injected treatment before insulin, perhaps, in some cases. And we really don't have all the answers to that yet. But um, right now, I believe, many people believe, and I, and I in general agree, that for people who have uh, type 2 diabetes, um, who have got as much as they're going to get out of oral therapies, 
um, and who have A1C values that are no higher than 8%, and they've been struggling with weight gain and, uh, and obesity, that is, a very difficult time sustaining any weight loss, uh, those people are pretty good candidates for one of these other injected therapies. So I think uh, we're going to have to learn more, but they're going to be the first injected therapy for some people. And although it's not approved by the FDA yet, uh, it probably will be approved to use these in combination with insulin in the near future. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, Professor of Medicine at Oregon Health Science University in Portland, Oregon, Dr. Matthew Riddle. Dr. Riddle, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. It's been a pleasure, Steve. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. <laughs> GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here <laughs> and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. <laughs> yes, I guess in a way it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com dia.